Michael Scott has a credibility problem. For those of you who haven't seen The Office or haven't seen this particular episode, Michael is trying to cover up for something he's done earlier. You see, at the beginning, he found out that Stanley, one of the employees at the office, was having an affair. He found out from the summer interns, and he was so excited about having the scoop that he went around the office and began telling everyone. But then Jim confronted him and said, you might ruin Stanley's life. So, so Michael decided that he would talk directly to Stanley. And then in this private, quiet, important moment, Stanley says, Michael, you have to promise you can't tell anyone. And Michael says, okay, I won't. Thinking through all the people he has already told. So instead of trying to go back and somehow undo this, we see Michael's words here. He decides that instead of trying to take the words back, he'll just start telling so many lies and start spreading so many rumors that people will no longer know the difference between what's true and what's false. Michael Scott has an incredible credibility problem. The text that we read today from Ephesians tells us about Paul's credibility problem. You see, Paul was writing this letter, as we heard earlier from Pastor Mary, to the both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And the Jews may have had some sense of who Paul was. But now, at the beginning of chapter 3, and I'd encourage you to pull open your Bibles. We're going to be looking at them frequently. It's page 950. There on page 950, we read it in the opening verse. Paul takes a detour here. He says, This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for, for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now he seems to have a word for the Gentiles alone. And you see, the Gentiles would not have known who Paul was. They wouldn't have had any idea who he was. This is well before the time of 24-hour cable news and digital photos. They would have had no way of knowing who this Paul guy was. And so as the one called to deliver the message about the mystery of Christ, they're left wondering, is this a credible witness? Is this somebody that we really need to listen to? Is this somebody who we can trust? And they're left with their doubts. And so as often as the case was in those times, the writer goes to great extent to try to say, folks, you need to listen to me. I'm a credible witness. If you just give me a chance, I'll tell you that what I have to say is true. And so we see Paul in this part of the letter doing it over and over and over again. Look, listen for all the personal pronouns in just these few verses. I, Paul, am a prisoner I have, that, I was, that was given me for you was made known to me by revelation. My understanding, verse 4, 7, of this gospel, I have become a servant according. Verse 8, I am the very least of all the saints. Following on, was given to me to bring to the Gentiles. And then in verse 13, I pray therefore that you may not lose heart over my sufferings. Paul seems to go to great lengths to put himself out in front of those who are reading this letter to say, I'm a credible witness. You, you, you need to believe me. And this was common for this day in a letter to make the person who's writing the letter known to the, those who are reading it because they don't know who he was. They don't know if he's a credible witness. They don't know if he's somebody that they should be listening to. And not only that, but the message that he's delivered that Pastor Mary talked about last week is that the church, folks, is going to change forever. The dividing wall that had been here before, it's gone. 
Through Christ, the two have become one, and now we are one in Christ. So there are huge implications for this message. And so Paul is doing all that he can to try to make himself a credible witness. But in the end, he, like Michael Scott, has a credibility problem. As I was thinking about Paul having a credibility problem, I thought, I think some of us might be able to fit in to that and to live into that. I wonder how many of us, when we don't look at our own lives quite carefully, think, uh, yeah, I have a credibility problem or we have a credibility problem. Our problem is not the same as Paul's. Paul was somebody had the problem because he was not known. People didn't know Paul, and therefore they were skeptical. They were wondering about, it was his message something they should believe or not? Us, on the other hand, uh, the, our problem is that people probably know us too well. Our mistakes are quite visible. And I think if we look at it carefully, we can see that this is true all over our society, all over our culture. It doesn't take long, does it, to come up with examples of ways that the church, for example, has a credibility problem? It was just last year that David Kinnaman and others did some research and, and found that the three most common words used to describe the church today, as it may know, anti-homosexual, judgmental, hypocritical. How's that for a trifecta? Not all that, not all that uh, complimentary. But it's, it doesn't stop there. I mean, we see it, don't we, in our churches too? We look around us and, and see that there's a credibility problem. We see that our churches are as comfortable building walls as they are tearing them down. We see that our churches today are among the most segregated places in our society. We see that as a church, we're more comfortable with harboring and holding on to bitterness as we are to reconciling and offering forgiveness to someone else. I mean, we see this, don't we? We experience this in our own lives. A colleague was telling me the story recently about a friend who was a pastor at a, a, quite a large church, and they had received a special offer from, or a special request from a, a mosque just down the street. You see, the mosque was looking for a place where they could celebrate the final feast of Ramadan, and the church that they were contacting had a large reception hall where they could host this meal. And so the pastor thought about it, prayed about it, sought wise counsel about it, and went back to the, the people at the mosque and said, you can, you may use our space with one condition. You provide a, a space or a time where I can come and share my testimony with all the people who are gathered there. Pretty bold request, I think. And you know what? They said yes. They said they could do it. So they have this large feast, 1,500 Muslims come and gather in this church, and this pastor has an opportunity to share his testimony at, as they're gathering for the Feast of Ramadan. Amazing. But you know something? It didn't take long for the word to get out. And all of a sudden, the letters, they just started pouring in. Emails, phone calls, because the church had found out that 1,500 Muslims had been in their church, and they couldn't believe it. And one person contacted and said, I heard that there were Muslims praying out on our lawn. Can you believe that? Who would give them such permission to do that? And the pastor said, uh, I did. And did you also hear I got to share my testimony? But they didn't want to hear that. They were so ready to run and judge and to come up with their own opinion. Is it any wonder that we have a credibility problem as a church? But, you know, it would be pretty easy to stop right there. 
for me, maybe for you to say, the church, the church has a problem. I've known this for years. I've been skeptical of the church, and that's why I've kept my distance. But I don't know about you, but when I look at my own life, I can come up with plenty of examples of the church, but I can come up with a few examples of my own. It's, it's a little too easy for me to set the goal of doing my devotions when I start my day. I've got my Bible sitting right there on my desk, so it's easy to get to. But if I'm honest, it's a little too easy to click the mouse and see how many emails have piled up overnight. It's a little too easy to return the phone calls and all of a sudden I am off and running and I'm halfway through my day before it hits me like, oh yeah, that open Bible sitting right there. I was going to do something with that. I don't know about you, it's a little too easy for me to be living in East Town and live among people who don't know Christ and to just talk sports, weather, and politics day after day and not really care about where they're at. To not engage in one intentional conversation about sharing the good news of the gospel that we're mandated to share in Matthew 28. It's a little too easy. And so I, not... I have a credibility problem. The associate chaplain of Calvin College, I have a credibility problem. My life doesn't always line up perfectly with what I say or what I believe. But I hope for all of you sitting in your seats, this isn't simply about an exercise in the church or an exercise in let's putting Aaron Winkle's life before you for an open book. I hope that each one of you takes a look tonight. Where are you at on the credibility scale? I know one example that came up from, and to my mind, it was about 10 days ago, Michael Leahy was standing in this space. Michael came and shared his uh, really heart-wrenching story of the devastating effects of pornography, sexual addiction had on his life. And a part of his presentation, he told us that uh, over 800 of our students had taken the survey, and there was somewhere around 20, upwards of 25% of our students of that, filled out that survey so that they regularly view pornography. If you're a male, it was closer to 50%. Was even a little more disturbing was that almost two-thirds of the students said that they were regularly either ashamed or embarrassed about their sexual activity. That's troubling. Now, that may be easy to hide and say, well, that's not really a credibility issue. Nobody even knows. But the last few weeks, many of you know that there's been a much more visible a uh, situation that's developed around our campus. Anybody heard about students being evicted from homes off campus because more than four unrelated people live there? Anybody? Show of hands. I know a couple. Uh, for a couple years now, the college has been receiving letters from neighbors. And the, na- the letters have said something to the effect of, how do you call yourselves a Christian college? When you, the administration, knowingly and willingly allow your students to disobey the law. And to students, how do you call yourselves Christians when you knowingly and willingly choose to disobey the law? And I know, I know the arguments about finances and I know the arguments about friends. All that I also do know is that the neighbors come and they see it as a credibility issue. They see it as an integrity issue. They see it as a Christian witness issue. And they say, you're willing to make these choices and lose some credibility with people around you. 
and lose your, your, your full Christian witness over a certain amount of money or a convenience issue. And I find that troubling. And I look at it and think, we together, we as a community, our, our credibility is at risk and is at stake. And I think how we respond will in some way address what, how serious we think that is. But you know, that's, that's pretty heavy, right? That's, that sounds like a lot of bad news. I like Chaplain Mary a whole lot better. She seemed to have more encouraging things to say. And you know something, there's, there's good news in the text tonight. Because we find that Paul's credibility problem and our credibility problem isn't only about us. We find there's good news in the text tonight. And I hope that you have your Bibles open with me so that we can go through it together. First of all, we, we need to look at this word mystery together. Four times you heard it in verse 3, mystery was made known to me by revelation. Verse 4, my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, verse 5, this mystery. In verse 9, what is this plan or this mystery? Paul's talking a lot about mystery. He's talking about secret. And one of the reasons this credibility matters, issue matters so much is we're among those. Paul was given a special task, an incredibly important task of telling the, that the mystery, that the secret that everybody was wondering about, that everybody had been whispering about, that now everybody got to know. And then he doesn't want it to be unclear, so he, in, verse, or in uh, verse 6, he makes it really clear. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, that is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and shares in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. We're all together. Paul's message is so important. His credibility is so important because the message is so profound. You see, in this time in history, there was lots of secret religions and goddesses had kind of secret passwords, secret handshakes sort of things that only a few people got to know. And once you were invited in, it was, don't tell them. Because this is just about us. You're special. This is just about us. And in some ways, that's the way it had been with the Jews before. There was clear boundaries and walls and certain people were in and certain people were out. And now, as Pastor Mary talked about last week, the wall's gone, everybody's in, and Paul's standing up and said, hey, listen, the secret that everybody's been telling you about, yeah, everybody gets to know now. You, you get to know. You've been feeling left out, don't worry. I want you to hear it, and I want you to hear it, and I want you, and I want you, and I want you. I want everybody to know what the secret is. This isn't any more about keeping people out. It's making sure that everybody gets to come in. The mystery, the secret, is for everybody to know. And so there's good news. This is for all of us. We all get to take part. We all get to be a part of it. Pastor Mary was telling me earlier this week that uh, when she was looking to do her PhD, she went and identified six schools that she was really interested in. And she went through and began doing some research, and one of the schools that quickly came to the top was the University of Illinois. And so she set up an interview to go down there. It was before she had taken the GRE and done some other things, but she wanted to learn more about their, their program. And as she was sitting down with the representative of the University of Illinois, they were talking this and that, and Pastor Mary was trying to be enthusiastic, but not too enthusiastic, like, I'm interested in you, but not too interested in you, because I've got lots of other options over here. I don't have everything riding on this. 
And at some point in the conversation, the, the, the director of the program said, uh, yeah, last year we had uh, 360 people apply, and we chose six. Think about what those odds are. Not so good. And Mary said, I thought about at that point just shaking his hand and saying, it has been a real pleasure talking to you. I'm just going to save your time, my time, and really pursue those other five schools that I've got on my radar screen. Now, to finish the story is, not too much long later, she got the email with the subject from the University of Illinois, accepted exclamation mark. That's our chaplain. And she got in. But if you've ever been in that sort of a setting where there's been insiders and outsiders, and it seems like there's far few people, far fewer people getting in than there is on the outside, Paul's message is to say, you all get in. All 360 of you next year, you all get in. There's no more insiders and outsiders. This is good news for everybody. And that's why Paul's credibility mattered so much. This message was so profound and so important that he wanted to make sure that nothing got in the way and that people heard this and understood it and they took it to heart. And that's why he highlights in this passage that this isn't only about him. You see, if this was just about Paul being good enough, smart enough, honest enough, uh, having enough integrity, it would have fallen flat on his, he would have fallen flat on his face. But no, follow along with me as we look at all the places where he talks about he's received this gift, he's received this message. In verse 2 it says, The commission of God's grace that was given me, Paul received, given me for you. In verse 3, was made known to me by revelation. This is a message that he's received. In verse 5, as it has now been revealed. In verse 7, the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Verse 8, Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles. You see, this isn't only about Paul's best thinking. This isn't, hey, I really had this great idea. I think that we should redo the church and change the wall. That's not it. Paul wants the people to know this is something I've received. God, this is God's plan. This is God's idea. It's been hidden for a long time, but now he wants to make it known, and for some reason he's chosen me, the least of all the people. He's chosen me to deliver this message. And so we find that Paul's credibility isn't only his, it's he has credibility because of what God's revealed to him. It, uh, it reminds me a little bit of at home, we have a, my wife Betsy and I have a four-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter, Annie. And occasionally, like before dinner, we'll give them instructions. We'll say like, hey, Quincy and Annie, it's time for dinner, time to go wash your hands. And Quincy, who tends to listen a little bit more carefully, He'll go running towards the, towards the bathroom to wash his hands, and he'll look behind, and Annie's not moving at all. And he's like, Annie, it's time to go wash your hands. It's time for dinner. And she looks at him like, I don't have to listen to you. <laughs> it's amazing how early that develops. I'm two years old. I don't have to listen to you. And then Quincy is learning. He's quite smart. We think so anyway. He'll look back, and when she doesn't move, he'll look back and say, uh, Annie, it's time for dinner. She doesn't move. Then he goes, tries again. Annie, mommy and daddy said, it's time for dinner. You need to wash your hands. And she looks up and she goes, okay, <laughs> okay. And she kind of comes pitter-patter right after Quincy, and she goes and washes it, washes her hands. They have already, Annie has already figured out that when there is authority, when there is credibility for mom and dad, she needs to listen to Quincy. 
And in the same way, the people there realize that this isn't just about Paul's best ideas about what the church should look like. He stands behind the authority. He stands and has the credibility of God who is saying, yeah, things have been hidden, things have happened this way before, but now it's a new day. And so as Paul delivers this message, he goes forward with the revelation of what God has said. So Paul has credibility. God gives Paul credibility through revelation. But it's not just revelation. You see, most of us know that before Paul was Paul, Paul was Saul. And if in Acts chapter 7 we read the story that Saul was one of those who stood by approvingly as, as Stephen was stoned. He stood by and watched and watched it take place. This is the same Saul who was on his way from Jerusalem traveling to Damascus to offer more murderous threats when there was a blinding light and he went down on his knees and, and God's, Jesus said to him, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is the Saul who had a rap sheet as long as you could imagine for persecuting Christians, for hating Christians and doing everything that he could to squash out Christianity. And now it's that same Saul, that same Paul, who is now the one who is traveling the world, enduring persecution to deliver the good news of the gospel, to say that the old walls are gone. You see, this Saul, this Paul, was living a transformed life. If Saul or if Paul had just kept living the same way and kept persecuting Christians and at the same time said, oh, by the way, there's some things that have changed. Let me tell you about the mystery. He wouldn't have had much to go on. But you see, Paul was living a transformed life. The Holy Spirit had come into his heart and his mind and his soul and he was changed. He began to live differently. And so Paul had the credibility of a transformed life as he went and shared this message as people did get to know him. They knew that he was different. They knew that there was something different about him. And it didn't mean that he was perfect. But it meant that God had come into his life and changed his life. And people could see it. In the same way, you and I had that same access, that same revelation from God, the same transformative power from God, that we, as we sit here and we can commiserate about our credibility problems, we also can look to God the same way that Paul looked to God, to have him working through and in us and among us to make us credible. You see, God still speaks in the same way that he stopped Paul on the Damascus road and turned his life around. He still does that stuff today. And I hope that in some way it's been true in your life. And if you haven't seen it in your life, I hope there are people around you who have lived a certain way for a long time and then they've come to know Christ and all of a sudden you look at them over here and you're like, those can't be the same two people. I, I know it's true for me. I gave you the some of the, my laundry list earlier, but my, my life's changing as God reveals himself to me. And one of the things that I love most about my job is I get a front row seat to hear about it happening in your lives. In the last week, I've had a student come into my office and, 
who has been praying about and reading scripture and seeking wise counsel about a decision he needs to make about a significant relationship. And he has been seeking God and God has been revealing himself to the student through wise counsel, through prayer, come and listen, as we sang earlier. It was just last week that I had a student in my office who, who talked about God's convicting work in his life. He's been convicted. God has convicted him of his sexual addiction in his life. And God has been providing freedom and relief and support for him to walk away from a life that has been pulling him back for years where he has been caught and burdened and torn and taken down by this addiction. And he has had eyes to see God working in his life. God changing his heart. God providing a community that he can live that, that accountable life out among. And so I love sitting in my office and having students walk in and tell me a variety of stories of how God's working in their lives. And I see it. I hear it. God continues to use scripture and friends and he uses prayer and he uses silent retreats and he uses a whole variety of means to speak to us and reveal himself to us. So we too, like Paul, can be transformed and given credibility by what God does, how he shows himself to us. In addition, God continues to transform lives. God continues to change lives. He makes the rough smooth. He makes the crooked straight. He does it in people's lives. This summer, I've spent uh, 10 days in West Africa. I've been dreaming and praying about the opportunity to go to Africa, and a door opened up this summer, and so I was invited by a dear friend to, to spend 10 days in the Ivory Coast at a summit of West African church leaders. And there were approximately 100 people from over 15 countries who came together and we studied together and we worshiped together, we prayed together, we did, uh, we just came before God and we heard God speak. We saw God move. And at the end of our time together, after we had met each other and heard stories and did a whole variety of things, we, at the end of the week, we had a chance to come together for communion. And people... God brought together a group of people who didn't share languages, didn't share color of skin, didn't share uh, tribal background, didn't share denomination, didn't share, and the list went on and on. For some of us, the only thing we had in common was that we called Jesus Christ Savior and Lord. And as we came to that table and we did an extended time and we embraced and we prayed together and we took the bread and we took the cup and we had the elements in our hands and, and God transformed us. He opened our eyes to what the kingdom of God was intended to look like. God revealed to us and showed us and let us experience it together in a very real and tangible way. And during that time, God healed past hurts God brought together tribes that had been apart and he brought them together. God brought neighboring nations and church leaders that had been competitive and trying to compete more than they were trying to collaborate and work together and he brought those things down. He brought together people who, men and women who had been battling back and forth and had been fighting about 
gender issues and they said they laid it down and they sought forgiveness and God healed those things. And once again, I had a chance to see that God still transforms lives. And as he does, he gives us credibility. God gives us credibility. It's not something we muster up on our own. It's that God provides it and offers it to us. And in the same way that celebrating the Lord's Supper brought that group together in West Africa, we here tonight have a chance to celebrate it together. And there may be as many nationalities represented here tonight as there was then. There may be as many people competing against each other rather than collaborating together as there was then. And we have a chance to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper, the gift to the church that he gave to us when he left. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And we get a chance to come tonight to be nourished to be reminded that we serve a God who reveals himself to us and a God who transforms us and allows us to understand the mystery of Christ.